Good morning. Welcome to EIU TV. It's my pleasure to start this roundtable discussion on the challenges on infections in urology. And it's also my pleasure to welcome two esteemed speakers we had in the plenary session today, Anne Ackermann from Los Angeles, US, and Savar Tandoktu from London, UCL. And our task today is to talk about the challenges of infections in urology, especially with the background and with regards to antimicrobial resistance. So, Safer, may I start with you? We heard today in the plenary session initially that already we have high rates of mortality in urosepsis and also high rates of death with antimicrobial resistant infections. Urinary tract infections been, being at the forefront of this development. Mm -hmm. So what is your perspective on that? Why do we have that and how will that develop? Um, thanks, Florian. So just to recap on that, what we saw today in the presentations are that, unfortunately, urosepsis, cause of urosepsis, is becoming the most prominent reason amongst all other causes of sepsis. The driving force behind this can be an aging population, could be the over-medicalization. Um, we as medic, medical uh, community, we're doing a great job, but that means we've got more patients with more catheters in. That means that chronic indwelling catheters would lead to more infections. We've got more patients on immune suppressive treatments. So overall, it's estimated that 11 million people across the globe, unfortunately, are dying from sepsis. Five million people we know are dying from antimicrobial resistance. That's another cause driving the outcomes of urosepsis also. And finally, to touch on the other point that was reflected today is that that 5 million death due to antimicrobial resistance will unfortunately go up to 10 million towards 2050. 2050. So I think that's uh, that's a brief picture of what we saw, the grim picture we saw today. And including that enterobacteria and gram-negative pathogens are one of those that are increasing. So, Anne, you mentioned in your presentation if a severe septic patient or a severe infected patient comes into a urological department, you have a strict regulatory workup and uh, you step in. So maybe you can uh, show, you, show us and, and, and how, how you deal with that on a daily basis. Sure. I think one of the most important uh, places that we actually neglect quite frequently is that patients who come in and there's this suspicion for sepsis, the drive to get them quickly into antimicrobial therapy and uh, is is so strong that sometimes we actually don't obtain appropriate uh, microbiological workup. And that can actually significantly impair our ability to take care of those patients. And I think may also be driving some of that uh, antimicrobial resistance. If we start treating people before we know what we're supposed to be treating, then you end up with extended courses, inappropriate antibiotics, and, and evolutionary pressures on those bacteria to develop resistance that didn't really need to happen. And so uh, we've tried very hard over the past couple of years in our hospital system to really implement strict protocols that when patients come in, they're obtaining uh, appropriate blood cultures, urine cultures, and any and, and appropriate imaging very early on so that we have a better sense of what are the non-antibiotic treatments that we can do to support the patients better. And if that's, you know, there is an an obstructive cause, something like urolithiasis, 
hepatitis or benign prostatic hyperplasia leading to urinary retention, that we can address those causes. Because if you address those causes, you often need less antibiotics to actually get the patient uh, better in the longer term. And are there any pitfalls you see in that? I mean, it looks straightforward. Patient comes in into emergency unit and you do the blood culture, you do lactate, prolactin. But are there pitfalls you see, especially also with regards to the elderly population? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the challenges is that that with that, particularly with that population, is that the the, the prevalence of bacteriuria is so high that, especially, say, in an institutionalized older population, so if patients are coming in from nursing homes and if they're cognitively impaired, I mean, the rates of bacteriuria in that population are quite high. And so really being able to definitively say, ah, this patient has urosepsis and not this patient has pneumonia but also has bacteriuria that's unrelated is extremely complicated. And I don't know how things are uh, across the rest of the world, but I, I often feel as if You know, if you find a urine culture that is positive, that that the drive there is to treat that in a, in any patient presenting with sort of nonspecific signs and symptoms, and that that may be quite uh, maybe another driver for both multidrug resistance and this increasing rates of urosepsis, whether they're real or not. Can I can I just take yes. a step back here and uh, go back to that real life scenario? <laughs> we're we're living in lovely California, beautiful sunny place. Um, very different than London. And uh, you have a patient presenting to A&E. Yes. Suspicion, suspicion of a severe infection. They're presenting slightly unwell, but they're not in septic shock or anything yes. like that. There's perhaps some signs of an obstruction. Are you telling us not to throw all antibiotics we have onto them in simple terms and instead try to sort out the source, resuscitate, get the cultures before you throw everything onto them? And go a bit more narrow in these select cases in, with antibiotic selection? That... So in the U.S., that's never going to happen, right? Okay. Because <laughs> we don't have uh, any protection against litigation. And okay. so if you have a patient who's sick, that you're getting everything in the book. And I think, okay. again, that's part of the problem is that yeah. is that because there's this fear of a bad outcome for patients, Yes. Um, the fear of bad outcome is so much stronger than the fear of driving antimicrobial resistance, right? Because one is a very immediate, very personal thing, mm -hmm. and the other is a much more esoteric, you know, that we'll deal with that later, it you know? It would not be right. it's not down to your own management. Yes, yeah, that's exactly. the problem. And you're yeah, not responsible for it, right? It's a societal, it's a societal issue. Right, but yes. I think, I think, so it really, I think, has to come down to we need to do a better job of really understanding mm -hmm. who's at risk mm -hmm. for severe, for, for progression, especially in the patient that comes in who's little bit of a change in mental status, not quite clear what's going on. They've got some baseline urinary symptoms. They, you know, can't really tell you, oh, two days ago, this started with sudden onset dysuria. Like what patient's going to come in and tell yes. you that, right? Yes. So I think there's a, <laughs> there's a challenge there because our, our, our gut instinct is to hit them with everything. Yes. We've been trying and on sort of a very trial basis to do an aggressive resuscitation protocol without antibiotics for for that patient. Okay. The one who isn't who doesn't have the fever and the leukocytosis. Yes. The one with the foul smelling urine for three days and the slight change in mental mental status and maybe they have a little malaise or fatigue, but nothing very clear or that clearly associated with a urosepsis at that moment. Mm -hmm. And to see if we can actually do a better job of resolving some of those acute presentations without the massive antibiotics. And I guess it brings us to the risk factors in that case. Yes, exactly. 
exactly. Now, Safar, you mentioned these scores yes. and the scoring systems. Is that something you would? Yes, absolutely. We're in here at that stage already. So um, the scoring systems are quite generic. For instance, the early warning score, right? The uh, sequential organ failure assessment score with a quick one, where you have only three parameters that, by observation, you can you can obtain your information. These are good enough. They're not perfect, in my opinion. And they're good enough at 80% or 90% of the time. The remaining is this soft criteria, I think, that we're talking about. You need to understand the risk factors of the patient, which I, which I wanted to continue on from your previous example. Um, for instance, someone who's elderly, who's presenting with a false smelling urine and a bit of early, uh, early warning score of about two or three borderline, hasn't jumped up massively, or a Q-sofa, that's one. In these patients, you are a bit suspicious that they've got an infection. They're less, if they're elderly, they're more likely to progress to sepsis. Those who are younger and fit, they're less likely to progress to sepsis. So it's a bit of a risk-based assessment. Yeah. You need to collect a holistically assessed, comprehensive assessment of your patient rather than throwing everything onto them. I think that's where we're going to move in the future. Maybe we start off by risk stratifications, but then a bit more personalization will get, get into it. The issue, I think, is what you said, litigation. If you get it wrong even once, you're done. Yeah, that's the problem. And in your talk, you 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 show these nice images from the MRI, but all the, the CT scan. So, how frequently do you do you use this? Because in my department, we use it very readily and early because it's available. I I don't think it should be delayed. So, therefore, I think these imaging are exactly what we need also for a very early diagnosis. How is that in the? No, US? absolutely. I mean, I think that early CT is actually quite commonly used, yes. even if ultrasound is is feasible most of the time. Time, patients are getting CT more regularly, at least in our emergency rooms. Um, I think the the hard part, and we had a whole session at the AUA this past year on this topic, is what happens, like when you said, is that you, you get the patient who comes in and they look sort of sick and they've got two non-obstructing lower pole renal stones, right? Mm -hmm. And you sort of look at, but but there's this pressure, I think, on the urologist in that circumstance of, well, is this contributing and uh, and you're forced to kind of make a decision about whether that's contributing or not contributing and again you're wrong once and and it can feel very wrong yes uh, i mean it can both feel very personally bad to be wrong about those sorts of things but also there's this fear of litigation and in that context i think we probably over intervene uh in ways that we may not need to uh and and indwelling devices i think may be part of what is driving this increase in your sepsis as well so it's it's really challenging to make that fine balance. And I'm hoping that in the future, both personalized scores, as well as hopefully biomarkers uh, yeah. that, that can do a like better what? job of helping. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I mean, we've seen a lot of, you know, looking at sort of the cytokine profiles of these patients in the urinary tract, as well as systemically. I think that that's that data still needs to mature a bit. Lactate? I personally think sure. lactate, procalcitone, that's what we are. Yeah, that won't give you really specifically yeah, no, why. Too specific. I agree. I agree. I think a game changer that's been developed that will that will change the whole field is that early diagnostics within the first rapid diagnostic actually of uh, bacteria and the susceptibility profile in the urine. 
that is definitely important. Nevertheless, it would not, wouldn't tell us if it's an asymptomatic bacteria and the patient has a pneumonia. Therefore, I think it's that the fine tuning of the pathologies we find on a rapid basis. Well, that brings us to the point that imaging, as you have yes. said, we also, all patients, if suspicion of sepsis, they'll get their imaging after resuscitation, of course. Yes, yes. So they, I think that is also inf- directing our decisions quite, and it's very helpful. I think I don't know a single patient that is so with sepsis without imaging now. Yeah. So head to toe. We talked about the initial diagnosis, the early diagnosis, personalized diagnosis, and the resuscitation. But nevertheless, we need antibiotics in that circumstance. And you mentioned uh, that it is a problem, uh, especially with increasing antimicrobial resistance. So what strategies do we have in these patients? And then as an outlook, as a societal measure to slow down the emergence of resistance. I think that that is something we should cover in the last minutes of this talk. So how, how do you do that at, at well, Los I, Angeles with a so I think, empiric treatment in, sure. in the severe septic patient? Right. I think, I think you know, we can have all the guidelines that we want about which agents are our right. first line or the and right get all the all the schedule. But in the end, I think we all need to do a better job of being aware of the local patterns of resistance and that you know, if you if you aren't aware that there's 40%, you know, fluoroquinolone resistance in your community, yes, the guidelines will say fluoroquinolones should be your first line for pyelonephritis, but you have to have some a circumspection about that if you have really high community rates. So part, part of it needs to be sort of awareness of your particular practice environment. And I think the other part we did cover nicely in the case reports, which is that the way to make sure that antibiotics in the acute, you know, the, the acute patient are effective is to stop using them so much in the non-acute patients. Yeah. And so if we can do a better job of managing, and I loved the term, the diagnostic stewardship, that was beautiful. I'm going to use that from now on. If we can do a better job of not looking for UTIs when there are no symptoms and really being selective about when we use them and refining that, that uh, treatment of outpatient UTIs that are not dangerous, right? The non-acute situation. Um, then we have better abilities to use those antibiotics full steam ahead when that patient comes into the emergency room in a really critical well, situation. This is where you, I think, with a point of care testing. Yes, point of care testing. Yes. But until that arrives, one thing I like asking my patients or to know about is that, okay, I know my community resistant rates, let's say, but I would like to know, have they got any other risk factors for antimicrobial resistance? So have they been traveling to an area? Of yeah, resistance? travel. Travel. But what about a, catheters? Is that they're, a, they're catheters, but how long have they had a catheter in? Where are they living? Are they coming from a nursing home? Is nephrostomy different to a bladder catheter in well, that I, respect? I think I'll speculate a bit here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we, in our own data set, we know that we think nephrostomy might be more protective for patients who are developing sepsis. Perhaps those are patients who are already have a, have a let's say a lower tract obstruction, mm-hmm. so the nephrostomy is helping with drainage. However, those nephrostomies we think are leading to more multi drug resistant pathogens. So it's mm-hmm. difficult to say what's what here mm-hmm. until we have more data for that. But if I see a nephrostomy, I would be suspicious of multi drug resistant. Yes. Another thing I would like to know is if the patient has had recently a surgical procedure and what antibiotic prophylaxis they got before that. Important, yes. And I wouldn't give that or antibiotic. biopsy yeah, they it's have a typical a, example with yes. a fluoroquinolone. Hopefully it's not used anymore, but it has been in the past. And then you give another fluoroquinolone. It will not definitely, work. Definitely it will not work. Yeah. It will not. Or 
we've seen that I've seen this at least in my practice. Someone has a biopsy, they go to A and E, they develop orchitis. They get the same antibiotic as they had got from prophylaxis because they went to a different hospital and the patient wouldn't know what antibiotic they got for prophylaxis. So standardizing those pathways also might be helpful so that everyone's talking the same language. Yeah. I mean, we, in the end of the uh, of this session, we should talk about for, for two minutes about the alternative strategies that we can use, maybe not only in sepsis, but also in the more benign infections, mm. such as recurrent cystitis, for example. Um, we have alluded to a lot of these strategies. We have them at our hands. Nothing is really personalized, maybe with the exception of, of postmenopausal women, where we know they have an estrogen deficiency. So how, how do you use that in, in the U.S.? Uh, for example, patient with recurrent Current cystitis. So, what kind of strategies do you discuss with them, and do you give them in, at their hands? Sure. Well, I think for for patients with uncomplicated recurrent cystitis, I think there there needs to be stronger guidelines. I think from us as as, as professional societies to utilize prophylaxis rather than intermittent treatment, because I think all of the data out there seems to suggest that intermittent treatment is what drives a lot of the antibiotic resistance. I also personally use a lot of non-antibiotic uh, prophylaxis in my practice, and with uh, the advent of two new uh, clinical trials looking at the uh, utility of methenamine, um, I actually use quite a lot of methenamine, okay. non-antibiotic prophylactic approach. Um, but one of and the a new kid on the block, it's an old one, it's but it has a higher, old <laughs> new kid on the block, yeah, with a new evidence, exactly, I must say, yes. Exactly. So at least there's there's better evidence to support it as a clinical uh, tool. But I think what will be really fascinating to me is where we go after the vaccinations become more commonplace. Because one of the things, I, you know, that was... I think that we have to consider is that one of the things that might drive our poor outcomes with UTI is the fact that people never, if, if you get antibiotics often and early in infections, even the ones that are uncomplicated and are unlikely to result in a systemic infection, you are actually tamping down the immune system's ability to generate its own immunity to those bacteria and to this as a process and to sort of prime itself to be ready for new infections later down the line. And so it may actually be that with vaccination, not only are are you helping to sort of develop that immune response that's there and ready to go? But you may also uh, be be allowing the immune system to sort of be ready and primed for infections in those locations that may reduce our incidence of of, of upper urinary tract infections or progression to urosepsis. And so I think that that minimizing antibiotics and letting the body be giving supportive care and letting the body be the thing that clears those infections may have benefits above and beyond just not developing multidrug resistance, but actually increasing our ability to to resolve these things ourselves. And keep so the antibiotics for the more yes, severe exactly, infections. Exactly. It's amazing. Is That links into the, to the two studies that approached patients with acute cystitis with non-antibiotic. Right, yes, antibiotic. even on the acute episode. On the acute episode. The acute episode no. A very small proportion of a woman on non-antibiotic arm developed pyelonephritis. So it's still not standard practice, but we need to understand who are the subgroup who do not develop pyelonephritis, so we spare them from complete antibiotic and obviously manage their symptoms. Yes. And the concept you just mentioned, I, I didn't know this, to be honest, <laughs> that if you delay the antibiotics, you allow the immunity to build up. I, I found that quite fascinating. I have no idea if it's real or not. Okay, you're <laughs> no, 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 no. But I think, but I think when, you, when you 
I, I honestly, in my treatment of recurrent UTIs in my own practice, I find that if I can just keep people off of antibiotics, even, and frankly, what's amazing to me is sometimes just education yes. about the necessity of antibiotics or not can be a single intervention that can do that. And um, I'm so surprised at times that those patients will actually resolve their cycles of recurrent antibiotics. And I think part of it may have to do with the fact that their immune systems have actually been able to clear those infections because they will tell you, oh, I've never had an episode. I've been perfect. So they'll tell you, well, I had this day or two where I thought I was getting an infection, but I waited and I took my ad, my ibuprofen and I took my, you know, and I drank some more fluid and it went away. And so I, I, I always have been sort of wondering if that may just represent an increased uh, uh, ability of the immune system to clear these infections that we've actually been tamping down by giving early Amazing. and a lot Amazing. of antibiotics. Yeah. So I think it's something to think about. As I think we also have to trust our immune system. I mean, we came uh, as human beings in the evolution <laughs> until the last 80 years. We came For quite well without antibiotics. <laughs> so and we have to really to, to repeat that uh, antibiotics are available not much longer than 80 years now from, from an everyday yes. clinical basis. So I think uh, we have a nice conversation here and uh, so it is uh, my pleasure to end this talk and uh, it's uh, my pleasure if you had liked this conversation, this discussion about urogenital infection which is an important strategy which is an important issue in urology and thank you very much Looking EAU TV.